0: Who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and happy Tuesday. What a busy news day it is. Uh, let's get you caught up real quickly in the headlines. We've got two amazing guests, by the way, which we will get to in just a second. First up Morgan Ortega's former chief spokeswoman for the State Department under Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo, a Navy reservist and one of the smart thinkers in the national security space today. She's going to join us to talk about Iran, Ukraine, Russia, all of the world hotspots and all that is driving us and she just came back from Israel where I think she had an amazing experience getting to getting to see the terrorist tunnels, getting to see the cooperation between Sunni Arab states. In Israel that the Abraham Accords brought. We have a great conversation with Morgan on that. And then, as we've said for much of the last year, there is an energy in the parents' rights movement, unlike anything we've seen really in the last 10, 20 years. Parents all across this country reasserting their rights, declaring that they don't co-parent with the government, that the children are there to be educated, not indoctrinated. And one of the driving forces of that movement, the successful effort to get parents the tools, the voice, the progress that is needed is a group called Parents Defending Education. Nicole Neely created that group a couple of years ago. It is making a huge, big difference. In fact, if you saw the story on justthenews.com yesterday that Virginia's Department of Education had put new rules in to deal with transgender students, sort of reversing some of the democratic ideas and far left ideas, Parents defending education played a big role in that, and I'm sure they have a lot to say about it. So Nicole's going to bring us up to speed on that. If you're a parent and you want to know, how can I assert my rights? How can I get my voice? How can I protect my children? How can I really charter what my children are going to learn and not cede it to the government? Nicole's going to give us filled in on that. Two really, really great guests. But before we get there, I want to take a quick whirl through the headlines. There's been a lot of big news In the breaking news space today, one of them, a story that almost everybody missed, but we've got it at Just the News. We're very proud of that when we find a story that others missed. But a federal appeal court has reversed a lower court ruling ordering the Republican National Committee to comply with a subpoena from the House January 6th Committee. Now, that sounds like an interesting process story, except for one thing. The federal appeals court didn't need to reverse that lower court. The case had become moot because the Democrats had withdrawn the subpoena, but the U.S. Circuit Court for Appeals for the District of Columbia, which is often a a court that leans a little bit to the left, it's in the D.C., it's the main federal appeals court in the Washington, D.C. area, they went out of their way to dismiss the lower court ruling trying to enforce that subpoena, even though it was moot, because they said there were, quote, important and unsettled constitutional questions, close quote, about whether the January 6th panel is lawful, whether it's lawfully constituted under the rules of Congress. That is a big signal, if you're Steve Bannon or Peter Navarro or anyone else fighting the committee, that there's an appellate court right in the backyard of Congress that has some questions about the authenticity, the legitimacy of the January 6th committee and its subpoenas. Really a remarkable ruling, because the court really could have just done two sentences saying, case is moot, dismissed, because there's no longer going to be a subpoena. But they went out of their way to point out two things. First, I'm going to read you the section where they talk about that these are serious issues that couldn't have been resolved and they weren't given a chance to resolve them. Almost like they were begging for someone to come forward and give them that chance. Well, the RNC claim, this is direct quotes from the ruling. The RNC claimed that disclosure of these documents, meaning the documents subpoenaed by the January 6th Committee, would reveal sensitive information about its digital strategy, so it sued to prevent the disclosure. The RNC argued that the committee was not lawfully constituted and that the subpoena violated the First Amendment. And that not lawfully constituted, we've talked about on this show several times. In fact, I think we're the first journalism organization to raise it. Why? Well, the rules that Nancy Pelosi put in place for Congress for subpoena authority for the investigatory committees, like the January 6th committee, says there must be a seated ranking member, a top Republican picked by the Republicans to be the counterbalance to the Democratic chairman. But on the January 6th committee, there is no ranking member. We know the reason why, because of the political dispute. Kevin McCarthy's picks were rejected. He decided not to engage anymore. Well, because there is no ranking member, there are some that now believe that this is an unlawfully constituted committee and therefore doesn't have the power to enforce the subpoenas like the ones that Steve Bannon was found in contempt of and that Peter Navarro is awaiting trial for contempt on. Let me read you the why the court reversed the ruling because it identified that there are whether the committee is lawfully constituted and whether the subpoena intruded on the First Amendment. But here's why they decided to reverse the lower court even though they didn't have to. Quote, because the committee caused the mootness, meaning they pulled back the subpoena, and thereby deprived us, the judges, of the ability to review the district's court decision, and given the important and unsettled constitutional questions that the appeal would have presented, we vacate the district court's judgment, the court ruling that actually enforced the subpoena. That is a very, very important statement. That, the court went out of its way. To make that ruling, it did not have to do it. It is signaling that there are legitimate concerns about the legitimacy, the lawful legitimacy of the January 6th committee. Now, it did one other thing. The appeals court also poked the Democratic-led committee saying, you played a game of hurry up and then wait, hurry up, then wait, hurry up, then wait. They repeated a history of making urgent requests to the court. Then there was long delays, another urgent request, and long delay, another urgent request, long delay. And then, oh, they withdrew the subpoena back on September 2nd. So the court takes a real poke at the Democrats for playing that game. It's a quote, the committee has taken various positions on whether and when it needs a subpoenaed RNC documents, the appeals court did. That was a little bit of a tap on the wrist saying, hey, it felt like you were playing games with us, committee. Uh, That is a really significant ruling. I don't think a lot of other people have found the significance of that ruling. It's up on Just the News as headline, Federal Appeals Court Reverses Ruling. On January six, subpoena to RNC and dismiss his case. Now, two other developments I want to highlight for you that are both important. First, there is a former Eco Health Alliance vice president. So, one of the companies that was one of the Fauci subcontractors for the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That former vice president, I believe his name is Andrew Huff, filed a sworn statement, sworn declaration, saying that his group developed. SARS-CoV-2 through gain-of-function research that makes more viruses, viruses more dangerous and that Anthony Fauci's NIAID, his agency, knew about it. They were listed as collaborators on it. This is a really significant claim, and it would put the lie to the testimony of Fauci, something that Rand Paul has been saying. Let me read you what Mr. Huff's lawyer, Thomas Wren, said. Anthony Fauci funded the creation of COVID-19 and lied to Congress about funding gain-of-function work. Anthony Fauci and others coordinated to cover up the funding of -of gain-of-function work that resulted in COVID-19. That's a big story. The documents are up on that. My good colleague, Greg Piper, has it. The headline is, former EcoHealth Alliance VP says, Fauci-funded group developed COVID-19. All right. And then finally, late last night, I broke this story. You probably saw the newsletters. You were going to bed. Jim Jordan has a new FBI whistleblower who alleges that the January 6th investigation is being manipulated to create the false illusion of a national extremism crisis, a national domestic violent extremist crisis. Why? There's really just one case January 6th, but what the FBI has been doing is opening up individual cases in all of the districts and all of the cities where some of these January 6th protesters occurred. Now, normally, you open up the case where the crime occurred. District of Columbia. They're opening up all of these cases around the country, even though they're related to people who went to the Capitol and committed their crimes on January 6th, to make it look like the entire map is dotted with violent extremism cases, basically affirming the rhetoric of the Joe Biden administration. Whistleblower is calling that a manipulation of the FBI statistics for political purposes. Jim Jordan made that revelation available last night in a letter FBI Director Chris Ray. Let me just read you the key quote. The FBI's case categorization creates the illusion that threats from the domestic violent extremist community are present in jurisdictions all across this nation, when in reality, they all stem from the same related investigation concerning the actions at the Capitol on January 6th. Such an artificial case categorization scheme allows FBI leadership to misleadingly point to significant increases in DVA threats nationwide that don't exist. It's pretty big. He also revealed that in order to pull this off and to keep resources on the January 6th probe, the FBI was cutting back on other important criminal investigations, including child sex exploitation cases. Significant, significant acknowledgement. That story's up on Justin News as well. All right, let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back, first up, my good friend, the former spokeswoman for the State Department, Morgan Ortega, is followed by Nicole Neely the founder and president of Parents Defending Education, a group that's on the front lines of many of the wins and advances for parents' rights across this country, including in Virginia, where new rules were put in place on transgender students last week. All right, we'll have all of that right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews and extend the invitation to a friend or a family member for free what a great opportunity folks financial experts thought we were in the clear they were anticipating around six rate cuts by the fed this year and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again just like we've been predicting friends this isn't going away anytime soon it can't the u.s is 34 plus trillion dollars in the hole and yet we keep printing money which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store so You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Our next guest was an amazing journalist and then went to the State Department, became one of the most influential voices there. You saw her on the podium. You saw her every day advising Secretary Mike Pompeo and others. She is now really one of the most trusted voices on national security in the world. Joining us right now, Morgan Ortegas. Morgan, great to have you back on the show.
1: Thank you, John. It's always good to be back.
0: I always love the work you did at Fox before you went to the State Department. I love the work you did at the State Department. You've got a new mission. You've created a new group, the Polaris National Security Group. Tell us a little bit about what this organization is going to do.
1: You know, we're dedicated to advancing conservative America first foreign policy and and national security priorities. Uh, One of the things we do is any candidate around the country who reaches out to us, we'll give them a briefing, we'll walk them through the top national security issues uh, of the day and uh, and help them understand how to talk about it right how do how does the uh, gas owner right of the mom and pop gas station in your district or uh, the owner of the local grocer how do how do people understand and care about you know iran, israel, Taiwan, which is in the news because of president Biden's um, statements on sixty minutes? Uh, you know I, one of the things that burns me up, John, I don't know how you feel about this, but one of the things that has always burned me up is there is this um, elite attitude amongst people who work in foreign policy that we understand the world better than you and the average American doesn't need to know it or understand they just need to listen to us and I've always just completely rejected that uh, that elitist form of, of you know uh, of talking down in many ways to the American people and yes there's people have a lot going on in their lives and so they don't have the time that I do or that you do maybe to intimately follow everything between Russia and Ukraine right um, but I think if we, if we explain it to people, talk to people, uh, you know, about what's going on in the world and why we have a more democratic outcome in our foreign policy. And what we saw happen over 20, 30 years is that, um, we ended up in a lot of foreign policy situations because the foreign policy community, um, in DC, uh, these people were divorced from the reality on the ground of everyday Americans. So if you want to have a robust foreign policy, if you want to have a strong national security, it cannot be divorced um, from what the average American thinks about our uh, strategic priorities abroad. And that's really what I work to help communicate.
0: Yeah, such an important thing. that The elitism in Washington and in the media and the social media world now is so intense. It's so prevalent that they literally treat Americans as being stupid when in fact Americans are quite prescient. They're quite common sense.
1: And it's these average it's these average everyday Americans, John, that are one that are the ones fighting and dying in our wars.
0: That's right. Yeah. They're the ones on the front lines that the policymakers send in when stuff hits the fan. Do you think we're at a tipping point? Do you think with this election in the next couple of elections that Americans are going to say, you know, I'm tired of being talked down to. I'm tired of being misled. I'm tired of being censored. You work for me. I'm the ultimate boss here. We the American taxpayer. Do you think we're getting at that point given the arc of the last two or three years?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, listen, I think we've we've sort of been there. And that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Um, And by the way, if it, you know, if it wasn't him, if you look at the, uh, at the Democratic side of the House, I was at the uh, Democrat convention in 2016 bernie signs everywhere the base of their party as well was also trying to to tell them uh that they that they were out of touch so you know it wasn't it wasn't just our side people people forget that they that Bernie movement was in, incredibly strong. And the Clinton team, I mean, not to relitigate 2016, uh, the Clinton team, I think, did not expect uh, the type of uh, pushback that they got from from Bernie world.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. That was the ice-breaking moment. But instead of adapting, instead of taking the internal message that the American people were sending through the support of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, they've doubled down on elitism. They've doubled down on big government double down on censorship. And it's mind boggling. President Joe Biden had a pretty remarkable interview in 60 Minutes. I think it's remarkable for all the backpedaling that occurred in the 24 hours after he said the pandemic's over, which, of course, undercut some of his executive orders. So then the next day, the White House was backpedaling on that. But perhaps the most consequential backpedal occurred with his statements on what the United States would do If China invaded Taiwan and then the White House did an awful lot of backpedaling, I think they did an entire lot backwards yesterday. Your thoughts on the lack of consistency the Biden administration has put out there on things as important as Taiwan?
1: So, I mean, at this point, it has happened so many times. I think we're at five times at this point where Biden, I think so, where Biden has said something on Taiwan and then the White House has walked it back. So I, I don't know. I, I'm starting to wonder if this is a strategy of theirs that they want to keep, you know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party on their feet and guessing what we really mean. I, I if it is a strategy, either way, it's not smart. Right. What is what clearly needs to happen is um, we need to look at the Taiwan Relations Act, which the Senate is doing right now. And as a country, we need to have the real discussion and the real debate if, if we are willing uh, to prevent a Chinese military takeover of Taiwan. I am for that. What I am not for, uh, in terms of, let me say, I, I am for making sure that doesn't happen. Uh, my friend, Bridge Colby, um, who you've probably interviewed, everybody should Google him, read what he's trying to, read what he's saying about this. Bridge was a uh, Trump DOD official. Um, Bridge has detailed how we are woefully unprepared for the fight. So one of the things that I worked really hard on, John, as as when I was State Department spokesperson for President Trump, one of the things that we really focused on Mike Pompeo and I was meaning what we say and saying what we mean and I think this is crucial because this team likes to beat their chest they like to hashtag they like to talk boldly but then there's not a lot of action to follow up the rhetoric I find that to be very dangerous in foreign policy. I think that you should speak, and whenever you speak, the world knows uh, that you mean it. They know that there's a legitimate, incredible threat behind it whenever whenever you say something. And I don't think you should speak when you're unprepared. We are unprepared for war over Taiwan right now. Unprepared, right? Uh, and, and, there's, you know, we go into much longer conversations, even more DOD experts than me, even though I'm in the Navy, um, about why our current budget, budget, uh, realities do not reflect the rhetoric that Biden and his team are, are, uh, pursuing. So my fundamental problem is not with a debate and a discussion over if taiwan is worth defending and fighting for we should have that as a country right strategic ambiguity is probably out the window it's time for a refresh of our of our taiwan policy but if we're, if we're going to make a policy if this administration is going to make a stated policy um that we're ready to defend taiwan militarily then we better freaking get our budget and our defense priorities together because they are not so that that again is i think a, a crucial crucial sin in biden foreign policy do not say things that everybody knows we cannot back up.
0: Yeah, and it has a dual effect, right? It emboldens our enemies, our adversaries. But at the same time, it actually confuses and worries our allies. And I can't tell you the number of world leaders and ambassadors that I've interacted with in the last year who've all told me, Joe Biden is confusing the hell out of us. We don't know where America stands. In fact, we're not sure they'd stand with us. And that ambiguity has beginning to really filter down into the ranks of the foreign diplomats, of the foreign policymakers in these countries. I've never been in a period of 35 years I've been a journalist where I've heard so many foreigners saying, what the heck is going on here? You're confusing the heck out of us. You're scaring us. And... I literally can't remember another time in our history where that's occurred. You went to Israel. I saw these great photos of you in the terrorist tunnels. You really gave the world, through your eyes, a lot of what you experienced there. Tell us a little bit about some of the highlights of that trip and what Americans should take away from what you witnessed.
1: Well, it was a wonderful trip. Um, I, I went there. There was It was actually a bipartisan delegation. I think there was about six Republicans, six Democrats. Um and the important, the United States relationship with Israel is far too important to be a partisan one. It makes me very sad to see so many liberal progressives um, uh, that are not supportive of the state of Israel. So I, I think it was important to have this bipartisan delegation and and to really see what's going on on the ground. Remember that this deal, uh, the JCPOA which is the Iran nuclear deal, which the Biden administration was trying to revive, which we withdrew from in the Trump administration. This deal affects Israel almost more than anyone else. I mean, certainly it affects the Gulf Arab states as well. Um, But this is, you're talking about uh, an existential threat for the state of Israel. So when we're meeting with their leaders and with their think tank representatives and their journalists, uh, they're obviously emotional and passionate about this issue um, because, they do not buy, they didn't buy Obama's rhetoric on this, and they don't buy Biden's rhetoric on this, that this would stop an Iran nuclear deal, excuse me, an Iran nuclear weapon. And you don't even have to take my word for it, you can take leading Democrats words for it. Go look at what Menendez said, go look at what Chuck Schumer said. And, and you know, this, the, the, it, it is a lie, it is a flat out lie to say that this deal prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, lie. This deal kicked the can down the road. It had sunset provisions, so that in in, in, in the team Obama's mind, instead of uh, getting to a nuclear weapon more quickly, they thought we're delaying it. What what were they doing by delaying it? Let's let let's let it be someone else's problem. And maybe if we delay the time in which they build a nuclear weapon by ten or fifteen years, and we do enough business with them, then maybe you know they will moderate themselves. Well, we tried this gambit with China. Re- remember, like for forty years, we 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 said, well, if we open up to China, and by the way, it might have been a smart gamble when Nixon did it at the time. But the theory was. If we open up with these countries, they will get richer. They will benefit from being a trading partner, and therefore they will moderate their behavior. It didn't work with the Chinese Communist Party, especially under Xi Jinping, and it's not going to work with this uh, regime because this is a this is a radical uh, uh, regime that is um, you know it, it it was it was it was based on a revolution, right? This is a revolutionary regime. They have no intent and no desire and no plan to moderate moderate. And anyone who thinks they do are being sold a bill
0: of goods. Yeah, no, it's really remarkable. And what goes on every day in Iran, which often gets completely blacked out in the American media, is a sort of violence and extremism that we would be just floored uh, if it occurred on our shores. This woman, Masa Amini, an Iranian woman who was arrested by the Islamic police, as we call them, the enforcement police in Iran, beaten to death, right? And then they lie about it saying, oh, she had a heart attack. No, she had significant brain damage. Tell us a little bit about what the daily people in Iran suffer from under this regime.
1: Well, thank you so much for bringing this up. This story of of Masa is just one that I think touches everyone's heart. Um, And and it is really, I think, um, well, it's definitely the catalyst for the current uh, protests that you're seeing right now. Um, and it's very organic, right? I mean, it just, so what happened, just so, so the listeners know, is uh, this one young woman was killed uh, by the religious police for not wearing the veil or the, head, or the headscarf properly the way they thought she would. She was killed. She was killed for her hair, right? Let that sink in. She was killed for her hair. and um, and, and so this is obviously igniting protests around the country. Uh, we're starting to see the very beginning stages of the regime cracking down and turning off the internet because there's protests, I believe, in almost every major city in Iran right now. Uh, a lot of us are, are are following this very closely. It's very similar um, to what we saw in this fall of 2019 when I was State Department spokesperson for President Trump when we saw the regime. Now, these numbers are hard to quantify, but We thought that there was at least 1,500 peaceful protesters that the regime killed, jailed another 10,000, could be more, right? It's it's really hard to quantify um, these things, Um, but the regime often brutally cracks down uh, on the average Iranian uh, whenever they do start to uh, uh, protest. So um, this is something that uh, world leaders should be speaking out about. In fact, um, it is, to me, it's shameful. It took the Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, 72 hours to release a statement, um, you know, condemning and uh, what happened uh, and how Masa was killed. Um, and this is, by the way, I mean, my social media is blowing up. I, I On Instagram, on Twitter, the posts I, I, I did in support of Masa are the most liked and the most retweeted things um, that I've ever done in my very short, you know, career on social media, whatever that means. Um, so she's a hero, um and the people protesting are here they're starting to attack government buildings if you if you know just reading news reports again it's it's sometimes hard to get accurate information out but What we should be doing, what this administration should be doing right now, is doing what Tony Blinken said that he was going to do in his confirmation hearing as Secretary of State. And that is that human rights should lead our foreign policy. So that means we need to not wait 72 hours to put out supportive statements. We also need to start finding ways, we as in the Biden administration, needs to start finding ways that the average Iranian um, can report these protests to us. We had telegram channels going so that people could try and send pictures and, and videos to us and Um, And so whatever means necessary, the Biden administration should be doing everything they can uh, to help the people of Iran. But what are they doing instead? Taking themselves 72 hours to put out statements because they still wanna hold on to the possibility of revising this failed deal.
0: Mm, It's just crazy. And President Raisi from Iran is here in the United States. And that was facilitated by President Joe Biden. He gets a visa from the United States government. The NYPD is providing him security, along with the Secret Service, Diplomatic Security Service. What message does that send to the Iranian people, to the region, that at a moment where we know Raisi has plotted terror attacks against President George W. Bush, John Bolton, Euro boss Mike Pompeo, and even diplomatic support downstream for them killed that woman on the ground, Massa on the ground in Iran. We're going to let him in the country like he's just an everyday guy.
1: Well, let me uh, let me also just say that it is um, shameful that he is in the country. Um, he is being protected. The the president of Iran is being protected by NYPD and by U.S. Secret Service. We are protecting a man who is currently plotting to assassinate. Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, Robert O'Brien, Brian Hook, you know, you could go through, these are all top Trump administration officials. But can you imagine, John, can you imagine when I was State Department spokesperson and when we were in the administration, if if a foreign government had an active plot to kill Obama, John Kerry, uh, Susan Rice, can you imagine? how the media and the left would respond if we did nothing. Not only did we do nothing, but we actually tried to negotiate with that regime and give that regime a deal without the precondition of, hey, uh, you can't actually like murder people who are senior in our government. It, it is, it, As far as I'm concerned, if, if, as far as I can, you know, looking at modern history, I don't think there's a precedent. I think this is precedent-setting.
0: It's just amazing to see the constant bending of American principle and will to keep trying to get a deal. That, By the way, Iran doesn't really want this deal. They just want to keep the object of the deal alive while they move ahead with all of their different programs. And you know, most common sense Americans like, they don't want a deal. We know they don't want a deal. If they wanted a deal, they wouldn't be here trying to carry out terror attacks. They wouldn't be bombing our soldiers in Iraq. Most Americans know that, but if for some reason, the elitists think that by saying it, they'll somehow fool Americans. I think we're really past that point. I want to go back to your trip for Israel because I think one of the most momentous accomplishments in foreign policy, which, by the way, almost never gets talked about in the daily media, Uh, the Abraham Accords. It seems as though almost on a daily basis, we are seeing a metamorphosis of the Middle East region, the uh, Sunni-Israeli alliances that are growing from economic ties to political ties. Uh, They're transforming the capability of keeping peace in the Middle East for a long time to come, creating an incredible counterforce to Iran. Uh, It doesn't get a lot of attention, but when you were in Israel, did you see the effects of the Abraham Accords?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went on Thursday night of last week. I was in uh, Haifa. No, 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 Hertulia, excuse me. Um, I was in Herzliya, Israel, and I went to a two-year celebration, two-year anniversary celebration of the Abraham Accords, um, and it was hosted um, uh, by the uh, UAE ambassador and the UAE foreign minister was there. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu was there, President Herzog of Israel was there. Uh, I can tell you I worked in foreign policy and national security for a long time. I, I, I never would have thought, 10 years ago, if you would have told me that I would be sitting in Herzliya with Bibi Netanyahu and the UAE foreign minister, I don't know
0: that I would have believed you. Yeah, no, it was so a great movie, but it's not happening. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. This is why I don't read fiction. Really. You really don't
0: need to, right? It, yeah, what an amazing thing to see. It, it, and uh, and yet you would you literally hardly know that the Abraham Accords occurred if you read the daily newspaper. It's such a missed opportunity by the mainstream media to acknowledge one of the biggest and most important dynamics in the region in a long time. Last question, I you know a lot of people forget with all the amazing things to do that you still serve your country in the Navy Reserves. Um, the military seems to be at an extraordinary moment of demoralization. Recruitment uh, isn't even close to being on target. Um, I think there's a lot of concerns that um, the wokeism, the ma- vaccine mandates, and and maybe the just a general perception that we're, we're we no longer treat America as a preeminent force have demoralized. The troops and the people who might want to serve there. As someone who serves, what do you see inside the military right now? What's going on and what have the Biden Democrats done to um, create this dynamic?
1: Um, so, it, uh, what I see is a lot of us, again, you know, I'm a little bit older, so I'm not one of the young ones coming in. Um, it, it's certainly interesting to talk to the younger ones because they, um, all of us, you know, I'm 40 years old. So everybody my age and a few years older, uh, we were um, shaped by 9/11, right? Uh, many people have done multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, so there's this collective sense of remembering exactly where where we were the moment that we heard that the uh, ten, Twin Towers were struck. Um, and so the young ones coming in don't uh, don't have that same sense. Um, and in some ways, you know, I, I I admire their service even more. Like we had. Our country's intact, and then we all said, Okay, I'm going to, you know, raise my hand and serve. For me, it was mostly in, on the diplomatic side until I, I wasn't commissioned um, until I was 32, so I was an older one. But, you know, these young ones coming in don't have that same, you know, formative experience that we all had. And, and what I think a lot of us are concerned about is the enlistment rates are down across all branches. Um, and you see people that are starting to, and that people that would normally re-up, you know, when it comes to the end of their term, decide to go ahead and get out, retire, uh, you know, move on. And, and I think that's really concerning for, for a lot of us. Um, is, you know, how do you, we're an all-volunteer force. And how do you recruit people to serve whenever you tell them that this is a white supremacist nation, you know, that it's terrible, that it's awful? I, I, why would young people sign up for that? To serve this terrible, awful, you know, nation that's a stain in unhistory, according to liberal activists.
0: Yeah, it is just remarkable, and it's a moment. I think we're going to step back in a few years and say we lost, we lost a lot of ground because we've either been running in place or maybe even running backwards a few steps. Um, you look out for the election. Do you feel good about Republicans' chances in November?
1: I feel great. I think everybody is wrong, and and in fact, I think uh, I think our Senate candidates, um, you know, this narrative about our about our Senate candidates being weak candidates. I, I know these guys. I was in uh, Pittsburgh two weeks ago with Dr. Oz. The first um, event that Oz and McCormick uh, did together, um, you know, since the primary was with my group, Polaris National Security, we spent an hour talking about foreign policy. It was an hour, right? No no politics, right? No, No red meat. It was an hour talking about these hardcore national security issues that you and I are talking about right now. And, um, and and Oz is incredibly smart, obviously. He's a heart surgeon. What I was surprised about, especially when I was to brief him, is how well he knew the issues. Uh, na- national security issues, he obviously understands the Middle East. And it's not just him. You know, working with Senate candidates around the country, uh, these races are always close. They're always one to three points. Um, but, you know, Blake Masters is just at an event in, I think, Phoenix the other night. I, I heard some of the audio and heard his remarks on Israel and Iran tough you know strong as nails um and so I, i'm excited i think we have very strong candidates i think um i think that we're going to take back the senate and uh this is a, a, a lot of posturing for people who want to just uh negatively talk about trump's um uh nom- nominees
0: yeah no that's really it. it's really remarkable uh morgan with all that you're doing how can people stay in touch particularly with the new project polaris well
1: thank you much for asking. Listen, I'm on Instagram. So oh, let's see for social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, you can catch me at at Morgan M-O-R-G-A-N ortegas Little tricky to spell O-R-T-A-G-U-S. Um, and then you can also uh, find Polaris Nat N-A-T Sec S-E-C. So but you can find all of that. If Polaris might be harder to find, if you go. Search for me, Morgan or take if you can find me, and I'm linked to everything on the Polaris side.
0: It sure is. There's a lot of really good stuff there, a lot of good um, analysis of what, wh- how we've gotten off track in the world in the last two years particularly. So, Morgan, always an honor to have you on. I love the conversations and uh, so glad to get an update on what it was like to be in Israel, too. What a very powerful uh, witness you've got to be for for the changes going on there. So thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Talk to you soon. Bye.
0: Uh, We will. All right, folks, we'll take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to deal a little bit with uh, the parents' rights movement. we got a great guest who's on the forefront of that, particularly starting in Virginia, now spreading across the country. We're going to give an update on that right after we hear from our sponsors, advertisers, and great partners. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. a field of greens stepped in one scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning. And boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down and my weight went down. And my doctor said, Hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's field of greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health, House Nutrition, and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. All right, folks. Welcome back from the commercial break. No issue has stayed more persistent in American politics over the last year and a half Then the right of parents to object to school boards and teachers unions and individual teachers putting indoctrination into what should be neutral education. It came up during the Youngkin extraordinary victory in Virginia and it has persisted into a nationwide movement where parents are tugging the strings back towards them so that they have a say in their children's education and can root out some of these liberal-driven ideologies that really aren't about education. They're really about indoctrination. And our next guest has been on the front lines of fighting that battle and making enormous progress in in establishing parents' rights around the country. Uh, Her name is Nicole Neely, and she is the president and founder of Parents Defending Education. Nicole, great to have you on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: It is an amazing time, and the measure of your success continues to roll up. Really big announcements. Late last week, Virginia put forward new guidance regarding the way that transgender pronouns and policies are going to be treated in the Virginia school system. Big win. Glenn Youngkin taking the lead on this. Your thoughts on that decision?
2: And it's, you know, isn't it sad that in 2022, the idea of parents actually exercising control over what's going on in their children's life and to be read in on the process, is it all controversial? I mean, that is so common sense, but suddenly it has become this partisan battlefield, which just blows my mind.
0: Yeah, it really is. In fact, you see some, I think it was a teacher's union out in California, they were literally doing opposition research on parents, trying to find dirt on parents so that they could neutralize a parent's absolute right to simply weigh in on their children's education it is mind-boggling in virginia where glenn young young made this an issue that was a winning issue a majority issue in virginia he's now been working to deliver on the many promises he made about this tell us a little bit about what these new virginia department of education rules do and how they make the situation better for empowering parents
2: Sure. So even though this has been couched unsurprisingly by members of the mainstream media as an attack on LGBT children, um, it's not whatsoever. All it does is it starts from the guiding principle of parents have the right to make decisions with respect to their children and that secrets shouldn't be kept from families. Very basic, very thoughtful, right? Because, no, again, this is not a partisan issue. We know it doesn't matter what the letter is next to your name, children do better when their families are involved in their life um you know it doesn't you can you can supplement their education you can ask them questions they feel loved you can work with a teacher if the child's having problems um but unfortunately what we've seen over the past year and a half pde has a tip line and we receive 50 to 200 tips a week from across the country we have seen districts from coast to coast intentionally undermining the role of the family cutting out explicitly framing out um, you know, that children, that families don't have a right to know about their children's gender identity at school. Schools keeping closets where children can change into different outfits at school, handing out test binders. I mean, really in, encouraging students to lead a double life. And so, with this significant emphasis in schools on mental health, I mean, let's take a step back and think if you're encouraging a 10, 11, 12 year old to lead a double life, to go by one name at school and another name at home, what is that supposed to do to a child's psyche? I mean, it's really kind of breathtaking. At where schools have gotten to. Um, And so that's why we think it's so important to stand up. And we're very grateful for Governor Youngkin for taking the lead on this issue because it's putting pressure on other states around the country to follow that lead.
0: Yeah, now there's a model, right? There's a specific model that others can follow. And this isn't about discriminating against students or shaming students or creating a dual system for students. All it's doing is trying to prevent the end run around parents saying that, hey, teachers and school administrators and others can't impose or work with a minor student to do something without the parents' permission, particularly something like a gender transition that would have long-term, if not lifetime, effects. That's the right way to read this. I mean, there's been a lot of spin that this is somehow discriminatory, but I don't see any discriminatory language here at all.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, what's sad is that what this policy proposes, or what this policy kind of blocks, and what we have seen school districts presupposing is that, Families won't be supportive of their children. They won't be loving. If a child were to come out to their parents, if the parent would throw them out on the street and I mean nothing could be farther from the truth. Certainly those you know, those things do happen from time to time. But the default setting is not that parents are hateful and unwelcoming. You know, parents want to love their children. They want to be helpful and they wanna be present and know what's going on so that they can, you know, figure out and, and, and ways to, to support them, to to uplift them. Um, but we, ha- we see school districts now implying, you know, you're not safe at home, but you're safe with us. And at the end of the day, you know, those principals, those superintendents, those math teachers are going to fall out of a child's life when that child graduates at the age of 18. We as parents will still be there, but that trust once destroyed between a parent and child is very difficult to rebuild. So why on earth is that being done to our children with our tax dollars?
0: Yeah, and transparency is really the key here, right? That's all that parents are asking for. Give us visibility to what's going on with our children, what you're teaching our children, what you're conversing with our children about, and let us make the final decision, which is where the law has always empowered parents to be the final arbiter of what happens with their children that transparency has been shrinking and shrinking it seems as though teachers unions school districts school administrators they charge exorbitant fees to file freedom of information act requests they try to deny uh, parents the right to talk or ask questions at school board meetings when did transparency become uh, an allergic reaction in the education system
2: isn't it yeah because i'm not sure at what point it happened but it is something as you as you said we are seeing coast to coast i mean people parents just asking very simple questions what's the lesson plan you know i want to know if my child's learning about germany maybe we'll have schnitzel for dinner we'll watch a movie together but you know instead i get an email once a week from my child's teacher well we're learning about the 60s what part of the 60s are you learning about the Beatles? are you learning about the weather underground you know these things matter. I want to know these things. Um, and for districts to keep parents at arm's length and tell them you know you must file a public records request. I mean how condescending and dismissive is that. you know We're not intended. we're not welcome obviously as partners in our children's education. I think this is you know the expert class saying we know better than you do how to raise your child. And that's why I think why you've seen so many parents rise over the past two years fighting tooth and nail, you know over my dead body, can you raise my child or my child and I want to be involved. And I will not let you keep me out of this process.
0: Yeah. And polling shows that this is a majority issue across the country. This isn't a 50-50 issue in America like so many issues. Parents feel strongly that the ultimate responsibility and decision-making resides with them. Your group, you talk about all of the great things that are coming in the tip lines, but your group has done some really remarkable work to highlight things that I think 10 years ago, we would have been shocked to hear this. Now, I think maybe we're not as shocked because there have been so many instances of this, but you're doing investigations, you're doing polling. Uh, I think it was in the last week or two that you guys found a assistant superintendent of a school system in Ohio was instructing teachers what to hide uh, student transitions from their parents, literally, literally keep the parents in the dark intentionally. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. And we have a lawsuit actually in rural Iowa about this, a district that says, Beginning in seventh grade, a child's gender identity um, can't be kept secret at the child's wishes. I mean, a seventh grader is twelve years old, and so again, we have administrators obviously leaning on children, encouraging them, just keep this the secret from mom and dad. Um, you know, we as parents, we tell our children to never keep secrets from our from our you know from from us. I mean, you know, that's what predators do. That's not what school administrators should be doing and encouraging. You know, we want to know when something's happening so that we can help and we can guide and we can protect. But we're not able to fulfill that role if we don't know what's going on. So why on earth are our administrators doing that in our schools?
0: Such a great question. It really is. uh, Beyond exposing some of these specific examples of interference and parental rights, uh, you are building um, a political movement to get a parent's rights um, law, parents' rights mentality in every one of the 50 states. Uh, it seems to be picking up momentum, right? Virginia, Florida, Texas, all in the lead. But now there seems to be a lot of other states beginning to craft similar, um, legislation or regulations or principles. Uh, what is that process like? And, uh, how do you feel about the momentum?
2: Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, even, you know, to see in blue states, like Pennsylvania, I guess, well, Pennsylvania is kind of purple, but, um, you know the candidate for governor, Josh Shapiro, just this week um, came out and said that he actually supported some limited school choice. And so I mean I think of kind of the umbrella of all this is parental engagement and empowerment. You know, that transcends racial lines. It transcends political lines. Parents want to be involved in their child's education and politicians ignore that idea and that concept at their peril. Stop talking down to us. We want to show up. We want to help out. We want to volunteer with the PTA. I mean I live in Northern Virginia and you know, in our public schools, we're actually still not allowed to enter the buildings because of COVID protocols. Um, So I don't know what posters are on my child's wall. You know, again, we're being, families are still being kept at arm's length by far too many districts um, and states, frankly, for that matter. And so I think, you know, until, until we're brought into the process, people will keep fighting. And so I think it's, some politicians are seeing the writing on the walls and others are fighting against it at the behest of organizations like the teachers unions. And I think they do so at their peril.
0: Yeah. And the more we learn about teachers unions, the more we realize that they played a really significant role in keeping cl- uh, classrooms and schools shut down for, in some states, up to two years. We're seeing the consequence of that as well, right? We're beginning to see the standard scores, math and reading went way down, historic drops over between 2019 and 2021. Um, When did teachers unions seem to become the anti-education force that they, they're now perceived by so many parents to be?
2: Uh, Sadly, I think they always have been, but I think just the mask has slipped in the past couple years where people have really seen what's taking place. And that's why, you know, we're seeing people like Randy Weingarten try and rewrite history, pretending like they were trying to keep schools open. You know, that's not true. You know, we have, thanks to organizations like uh, Americans for Public Trust, they filed public records requests and saw that the teachers unions were working with the CDC to keep schools closed. And so I think it's sort of incumbent on us as parents to remember who was on the side of children and who was on the side of the unions, the money and their power? Um, you know, sadly, the unions have always been about their money and their power. So think about over the past couple of years, their annual meetings where they voted on things like support for abortion up until the, you know, the moment of birth um, or the, the boycott, divest sanctions um, movement against Israel. That has nothing to do with our children. They have actually voted down resolutions focusing on student excellence and achievement and voted on political things like Medicare for all. Um, so this is again it's just, it's never been about our children. I think a lot of people are just waking up to that fact recently,
0: yeah, and one of the things that has advanced this or or created popular cultural reinforcement air cover, as some people might say in in the political terms uh is the role that big tech in um social media are playing to try to both influence parents or bully parents, and then also to reach children around their parents to instill values that may not be the values that their parents want. Um, You recently did a poll on the influence of big tech on on students. Tell us what you found.
2: Yeah, I mean, parents are very worried about this. Obviously, during lockdown, um, there was endless screen time thanks to Zoom school, again, contributing to the learning loss because it just wasn't engaging children. Um, But beyond that, uh, other big tech players um, like Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, Um, I think parents are deeply worried, and rightly so, about the impact that that has on their children's um, mental health, um, the amount of time that children are spending, and even in schools, um, schools using platforms like Panorama Education to ask students deeply intrusive personal questions. Um, And then, you know, what do they do with that information? How will that be used against your child in the future? Parents have rights. You know, they should be allowed to opt out of things like that if they're done in public schools, yet somewhat strangely. Schools often forget to tell parents that they have the right to opt out because you know what that data is valuable, and it really i think it bothers people that this this is happening to our children, but again we don 't know what 's going on because we want to make decisions about our children our children 's privacy, and you know what our children have access to or not it 's impossible i mean me as a mother i have a seven year old and an eight year old uh, I have a master's degree and i can 't figure out how to set child locks on most of these platforms and that 's really deeply worrisome because there are sadly predators out there. There are people out there with malign intent and I want to protect my children from them. Um, and so, you know, the fact that tech companies have made it so difficult raises questions about what their true intentions are.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the data is now beginning to come out increasingly to show the consequences. I think there was a study out last week that said if you took school districts that kept remote learning much longer and those that went back sooner from COVID-19, the learning loss differences were substantial. I think maybe it was 13 percentage points difference Um, data hasn't driven a lot of these decisions emotions politics um, censorship have driven a lot of it but now as we get real data about the consequences of these policies it's clear that that we've created a generation who has been harmed more than maybe any other generation in recent history by education decisions do you think that's sinking in now
2: i think it is and i think it's also a reason with those really Um, you know, awful NAEP scores that came out about two weeks ago. It's one reason that we're starting to see the teachers union say, well, testing is racist. We shouldn't have testing in the future because this is the one, one of the few tools we have to actually hold, you know, school officials accountable for those decisions, for keeping schools closed, um, for, um, you know, the kinds of policies, for for cutting out core curriculum at the expense of social emotional learning programs. Um, You know, this is, we have to know what you know, what these decisions, what the impact of that was. And so um, testing is important because some of these teachers are not good enough. Some of these programs should not be replicated and we should be redirecting funding and time to things that students need to know. I mean, again, I think about all the time and money that's spent on social emotional learning, trying to, you know, improve students' mental health. One thing that really helps students' mental health is subject level mastery, giving them the confidence that they're good at something. But unfortunately, we're putting the cart before the horse and telling people, you know, feel good about yourself, but you still can't read at the end of the day. And so I think there are very common sense solutions that the data would suggest. And that's why, you know, activists and ideologues don't want the data because it really, it really messes up their plans.
0: Yeah, it really does. And what you see is an obfuscation as the data comes in, the rhetoric, like from people like Randy Weingart and others, is designed to distract from the data by, you know, suggesting that a parent's legitimate disagreement with um a school district over curriculum is somehow hateful or domestic terrorism or or other things, so there is this uh politicalization and weaponization of emotion designed to distract away from the data, which is what a lot of parents are using to guide these decisions right? they they know they know common sense and and data don 't lie and and so how destructive is it to see unions? try to play the race and hate and extremism card against parents who simply are trying to do what's right by their children.
2: Yeah, it's really, it's so distressing as a parent, as a as an activist, to see those kinds of things because, I mean, every interview we do, you know, talking about an incident that comes into through a tip line in a district, we pull that district's proficiency rates, and then, you know, we started to actually pull superintendent salaries. Who's making these decisions, and how are our children actually performing? if students are reading and writing and and doing math at grade level, then that's terrific. Okay, well, maybe let's start to think about adding in some of those other programs. But until we have made up this astonishing learning loss, let's not do those things. And I think, you know, that's the kind of thing that really resonates with people across across the political spectrum. The default setting for most parents is we want our children to learn when they go to school, and we want them to be safe. And sadly, in far too many schools across the country, neither of those premises are being met whatsoever. Um, And that's, you know, when parents realize that they're shocked and horrified and then they want to go find something better because they're not just going to let that happen to their child. They're going to go and fight and defend their child, fight for their child. Um, and so it's, um, we just trying to remind the public of this is what your school doing. You deserve better and your child deserves better.
0: Yeah. It, it's so remarkable. And you know, it's interesting as this debate rages on and as the uh, liberal side starts to dig down into more uh, uh, extreme positions. You're even seeing some iconic liberals come back and say, oh, guys, you guys are blowing this, and you are know, you're, 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 you don't understand the bear that you're poking. Over the uh, weekend, Bill Belmar, I think, had a pretty strong repudiation of uh, those who were attacking parents simply for being concerned about the future of their children. Do you think this is a turning tide moment, that this election, maybe some of the cultural leaders on television are beginning to realize uh, that this envelope has been pushed maybe a mile too far?
2: I think... So, I mean, I, I think so. I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that, um, yeah, what we have assumed when you drop your child off at the schoolhouse gates, that everything is great and we don't need to worry about it. I think, you know, during COVID, the scale fell from people's eyes. They saw the, what their children were learning or were not learning, were worried about it. Um, and then now that they're being kept at arm's length, even now that schools are reopened, they're still concerned about what's taking place without their knowledge and input. And so Um, I don't think this movement is fizzling out at all. Certainly, you know, the kinds of fights are changing a little bit, but um, I think people will continue to be very, very worried about their children, particularly, again, with with these horrible test scores coming up, people knowing that their children are not at the level they should be. Um, I think, you know, there are many students where this is going to be a lost generation. And sadly, the same people who scream equity from the rooftop, the data shows that the children who have been most hurt and most impacted by these policies, by the school closures, by the virtual schooling, are disadvantaged students, are minority students. And so shame on them for continuing to push their activist agenda while sacrificing these children.
0: Yeah, literally the very people they claim they were trying to help, they've actually victimized uh, more. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, I think as people look out at, at what your group is doing, it, it really seems to be boiled down pretty simply, right? You want uh, schools to focus on education, not indoctrination. You wanna get parents first, not <laughs> politics first um, what is the path forward for that now? I mean, what are you doing, uh, on a daily uh, basis, Nicole, to move that forward? You've made a lot of progress in the last year, but what are the big milestones that we should be watching for?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we try to focus on three things. The first is educating parents. What are your rights? I mean, you think about rights in school and so often it's, you know, it actually, you know, ends up being in higher ed. You think about campus free speech, you think about Leah Thomas as a but you don't think about, can my fourth grader be compelled to use somebody's preferred pronouns? Um, so we want to tell people what their rights are so they know where the red lines are. And so if and when a school crosses those lines, they know that that's bad, that, you know, you are, you are right, your instincts were right, and, you know, it's time to do something about it. Um, we also try and, and expose just all these bad deeds um, because people have no idea what's taking place behind closed doors. Um, and once they know, it gives them a reason to speak up at a school board meeting. It gives them a reason to demand change and demand better. It's been really interesting over the past year and a half to watch all these school districts, once they're caught with their hand in the cookie jar, um, say, oops, that was a mistake. There's an awful lot of mistakes being made in American education these days. Um, And we want to call them out. And we want that to be a cautionary tale for other districts that maybe have similar lesson plans or similar programming. You know, you do this and you're going to get busted as well. But then finally, and I think the most important part is teaching people how to get off the sidelines and do something about it. One person can and very often does make a difference. Um, Sending us an anonymous tip. Um, sending a letter to their school board, speaking up. I mean, we're seeing across the country, districts that are canceling contracts with echoey consultants. Um, We're seeing um, superintendents that are getting fired, Um, school board members that are being recalled. Um, There are people who are stepping up and acting and affecting change. And that's a story, sadly, that's not being told by the mainstream press, but it is happening every day from coast to coast. And so we really want to encourage people, you know, get up and do something. Because at the end of the day, This is your neighborhood. These are your children. This is the most important fight of your life.
0: Yeah, and listen, the victories that you've rolled up are beginning to affirm that parents really can make a difference. If you know what's going on, if you know what your rights are, uh, the ability to turn a debate in your school district, in your classroom, in your school is real, And I think the more you roll up victories with the good work you're doing, the more parents are getting that confidence. Are you amazed by the number of parents that were motivated to go run for school board this and this past uh, season, that, that really putting some skin in the game?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, for, for far too long, so many people have focused on the federal government and neglected, you know, state and local government. Um, so people, you know, didn't pay attention to city council meetings, to school board meetings. Um, and now they're realizing, I think COVID has shown us, where you live matters your neighborhood politicians matter um they make decisions that really you know can keep a child mad, can keep a school closed um can you know keep tax rates high and so people are getting off the sideline and stepping up and it is tremendously exciting i mean it reminds me a little bit of the tea party you know 10 15 years ago Um, but i think this has more staying power because i think the covid pandemic really drove home that you know you're at the end of the day you are the only one who is going to clean up your neighborhood
0: Yeah, that's such a thing. It is a carpe diem strategy. Uh, Nicole, real quickly, how can people stay in touch with the great work that you're doing, uh, get involved if they're inspired to uh, to work with Parents Defending Education?
2: Yeah, our website is defendinged.org. Our tip line is there. We have a map up there um, where we put up the tips. um, So you can search by state. You can search by issue. We have all of our educational resources there, um, our engagement tips on how to get involved in different things. Um, And then we're also on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So people can find us there as well.
0: Yeah, so important. So important indeed. Well, Nicole, your work is amazing. Lots of people are paying attention. And uh, there's a whole generation of parents that I think have sprung into action because of the great work, the examples, the investigations, the polling, and now. Uh, the instruction and roadmaps that you're giving people. Really, uh, I've covered politics a long time. I've never seen a movement like this. Very, very exciting. Got to get you back on real soon to keep on top of this issue. Really appreciate the conversation today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Great to be with you. All right, folks, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. BP added more than $70
2: billion to the US economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy,
1: and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free?
0: Thanks for sticking with us through the commercial break. What a great show. Big thank you to Morgan Ortegas, Nicole Neely, for giving us two really thoughtful conversations. Stuff you're not getting to hear at other news media institutions. That's what we strive to do here at justthenews.com and John Solomon Reports. Get your news. You can't get anywhere else from trusted sources with transparency, with honesty. That's what we're really trying to do. And before we go into the yonder tonight to take the rest of the night off, to go to do the rest of our life's chores, I wanted to shout out one of our pretty remarkable partners, somebody who has recently joined the podcast. They're helping you and I and everyone else prepare for the food shortages that farmers both in America and worldwide are warning is on the horizon. The supply chain, fuel prices, fertilizer prices, which are way up are creating real concerns that there's going to be a food shortage across the globe in the next few months into all of next year. So now is a good time to stock up on your emergency food. Make sure your cupboards are full and ready in case the worst happens. And my friends at My Patriot Supply, well, they want to help American families prepare and do it affordably. So right now they're offering 20% off. That's a huge savings. You don't get 20% off anything anymore. 20% off the my Patriot Supplies most popular three month emergency food kit. You heard me right too. When I said 20%, we mean it. How are you going to get that? You're going to go to the URL. They created it with my name, and it's really cool. Preparewithsolomon.com. The kit contains enough meals for three months per person, giving you peace of mind when you need it most. By making this decision now, your family won't suffer and you're going to get it at a great price. Why? Because My Patriot bought the food supplies a while back before prices were rising, which means they're passing the savings. On to you. Now, to take advantage of this, get your cupboards stored. Take this worry off of your list. All you got to do is go to Prepare with Solomon. Prepare with dot to uh, check out the offer. Get the 20% off. Get your cupboards filled with one of those incredible three-month emergency food kits. Hats off to my good friends at My Patriot Supply for giving such a great offer to all of us. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I really love it. Go check them out today at prepare with Solomon. All right, folks, that wraps it up. Have a great evening. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, may God bless you and may God bless this extraordinary country of the United States of America, as he always has. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from just the news. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out.